Amen, amen. Well, good morning, church. I hope you're doing well today. Uh, we are in a series right now called Knowing God, where we've been walking through uh, the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and so we are uh, about nine weeks into that, and so we have gotten all the way to the end of the book of Genesis. Today, we will finish up uh, in the book of Genesis with the story of Joseph. I hope you're enjoying it. I hope you're following along with us uh, in the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, we have tons of resources to help you with that. We want this to be a, a family initiative. So if you have uh, children, we'd love for you to walk through. They're doing the same thing right now uh, in Connection Kids, walking through the story with us. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to Genesis uh, chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37, uh, I won't be reading from, I'm not going to read 14 chapters of the Bible to you this morning, uh, so I'm going to do my best uh, to summarize 14 chapters, Genesis 37 uh, through 50, and I'll bounce from uh, chapter to chapter and read uh, maybe a little bit of each chapter as it applies to the story of Joseph. So let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, we love you. Uh, God, you're so good to us. Uh, Father, as we dig into the story of Joseph this morning, God, would you show us uh, yourself? Uh, God, would you show us uh, our sin and areas of our life where we need to grow? And Father, would you reveal to us Jesus and how great of a Savior that he is to us? So Father, we need you. Uh, would you empower your word? Uh, speak to our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So we've uh, tracked along. We started in Genesis uh, 1, and we got to Genesis chapter 12, and we met a guy by the name of Abraham. And Abraham, God had given him a promise, the promise that uh, a Savior would come into the world through him, that he would be the father of the Israelites in which he would bless the world through. And so we saw Abraham had a son named Isaac, and then we saw Isaac have a son named Jacob. We talked about Jacob, Rachel, and Leah last week. And so today we're moving to Jacob's son, uh, through Rachel named Joseph, right? And so we're talking about Joseph today. So we are uh, pretty deep into this now. A couple things I want you to know about Joseph. Joseph was daddy's favorite, right? And so uh, one of the things that you see early on in the book of Genesis uh, is that there's a lot of favoritism, favorite sons or favorite daughters or mom's favorite, dad's favorite, and it causes a lot of conflict. And I think we can learn uh, from that. And so Jacob should have known better because Isaac, his, his father, had played favorites with Esau instead of Jacob, and it caused a lot of daddy issues in his life. But nonetheless, uh, we see Joseph uh, be the favorite of uh, Jacob, right? And so if you hadn't noticed in your reading in the book of Genesis, uh, there's a lot of jacked up stuff going on in these families, right? So it should give you a lot of hope that God is not done with you, that God can do a work in your family. If he can work through this family, he can work through any family. So to make matters worse, not only did Jacob favorite uh, Joseph, he also gave him a coat of many colors. We've learned about this, hopefully, in Sunday school where you've heard people talk about it. This coat of many colors uh, was a coat specifically with long sleeves. And what that was symbolized was that whoever had this coat uh, uh, the, of the sons it was a status thing, right? So this, this would have been the favorite son. He wouldn't have had to work hardly. He would have just been kind of the daddy's favorite. Everybody else would be out in the farm uh, working and, and doing their business, and this son would kind of be hanging out. So you can see this didn't uh, really go over well with the brothers, right? Dad and mom were shopping uh, at Dollar General for their clothes, and then you flash forward, and they were, for Joseph, they were going to Brooks Brothers or to the mall to get something nice for him. And so this wouldn't have went over very well. And so the brothers seem to be at a place where they are disliking Joseph. Well, on top of that, Joseph began having dreams. Many of us uh, know Joseph was a dream interpreter. He also had a dream. And so his first dream we see is one about sheaving wheat, right? And so he's in the wheat field with all of his brothers, well, Joseph, of course, the favorite, uh, God shows him that, that he has more wheat than everybody else. And then not only does he see that, he sees his brothers and his mom and dad bowing down to him, right? And so, of course, the innocent kid that Joseph was, he's a teenager at the time, comes and says, hey, family, let me tell you a dream that God gave me, and I think it's prophetic of what's going to happen in the future, you guys are going to bow down to me and submit to me. I'm going to be the leader, and you are going to be the followers. Of course, the brothers would have loved that, right? No, 
they got angry. And so the next thing you see uh, is you see Joseph go out to check on his brothers because his dad had told him to. And the brothers have, have connived up a plan. They're tired of it. They're tired of the favoritism, the treatment of, Jacob, or of Joseph that he's getting from Jacob. And so they're tired of it. And so they devise a plan uh, to kill Joseph. At the last minute, they decide to sell him into slavery. Uh, so they throw him in a pit. Uh, there's some Ishmaelites coming by. They sell him into slavery. And so he ends up in Egypt and the brothers go back to the dad and basically tell him a story about how Joseph was killed by an animal. They give him the, the coat of many colors. It's torn up. There's, it's dipped in blood. They say an animal has gotten a hold of him and Joseph is dead. But meanwhile, Joseph shows up on the slave market in Egypt and an Egyptian named Potiphar buys him. Potiphar just happens to be uh, a captain in the Egyptian army is what that means. And we see for the first time in Genesis chapter 39, so you can bounce forward to 39, verse 2, this phrase that you're going to see be a theme in the life of Joseph uh, from the start to finish. Genesis 39, 2, it says, but the Lord was with Joseph. And at this point, you're thinking, hold on, I haven't seen a lot of favoritism in Joseph's life. I mean, the man just almost died, got sold into slavery. Now he's a slave in Potiphar's house. You're telling me God is with him. Well, we're going to see just because God's with us doesn't mean things are going to always go well for us. God is working out something in Joseph's life that we can't see yet. But Joseph understood this, and he understood this truth, and I think we need to understand this truth as a Christian is that God is with us. And so because Joseph understood this, he served Potiphar faithfully, even in a difficult situation. Genesis 39 verse 5 tell us, and Potiphar saw that the Lord was with Joseph, and that the Lord caused all that Joseph did to succeed in his hands. And so he made him overseer in his house and put him in charge of all that he had. And this is important for us to understand because Joseph could have went into a self-pity mode when all this bad stuff started happening to him and really start questioning God. If God was with me, how could this happen? Or God has forsaken me, but he didn't do that. Joseph believed that God was with him and he served God. And because of that, Potiphar put him in charge of everything in his house. Now, you would think things get easier, right? He got favor with Potiphar. Potiphar put him in charge. Nope, here we come. Enter Potiphar's wife. Many of you have heard this story before. You see Potiphar's wife come in the picture. She decides that Joseph uh, was a stud. And the Bible tells us that Joseph was a stud. A lot like Rachel, uh, he was very good looking. His face was good looking. His body was good looking. Uh, the dude was a stud. So she decided uh, that she wanted to sleep with Joseph. And so Potiphar's wife, uh, one day as Potiphar's out, she comes in in her best lingerie and bikini and tries to seduce uh, Joseph. She don't understand that Joseph is a man of God and he's not easy uh, to be seduced. And she's pretty direct. She uses the, the, the most direct pickup line in the history of the Bible. She says, Joseph, lie with me. Lie with me. In the Hebrew, that means sex now, right? And so again, we've seen Genesis is not a PG-rated book. There's a lot of stuff going on in here. And so Potiphar's wife likes what she sees and she wants to have sex with Joseph and she makes that very clear, not just one time, but over and over again. But Joseph won't do it. He stands up and he faces the temptation and he's obedient. He knows it's against the law of God and as well as a betrayal to the master uh, that he was trusted to, Potiphar, and he doesn't want to do that. And so, of course, uh, Miss Potiphar's not very happy with this situation that she's being turned down, so she connives a plan against Jacob. She steals his coat. Uh, one time she comes and Joseph runs out, leaves his coat, so she didn't really have to steal it. She takes it, brings it to Potiphar, and basically says, hey, Joseph tried to rape me. And here's his coat to prove that he tried to do that. So that lands Potiphar, or that lands Joseph in prison uh, at Potiphar's house. And so now he went from the palace in charge of everything. Now he's down in prison. And we see in Genesis 39, 21, the statement again. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. At this point, you start to think, okay, like maybe after the first time I believed God was with him, but now this, there's no way, right? So you're, you're thinking at this point, really, God, could you be with 
me a little less is probably what Joseph is thinking. If this is what it means for you to be with me, I don't want you to be with me anymore, right? I want to be back uh, where things are good. If this is what steadfast love is, this is not what I intended. Then we read in Genesis 39, 22 again, and God gave him favor with the keeper of the prison. And the keeper put, put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with Joseph. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So we see Joseph in prison, and instead of sulking in prison because of the bad that had happened to him, Joseph now is, is leading the prison. He's almost the warden in the prison system. And we see in chapter 40, uh, you know, Another situation, while he's in prison, we get uh, two guys show up, a butler and a baker, and we learn that these guys had been high up in the Pharaoh's court, and uh, Joseph kind of gets to know them. Well, these two guys uh, are having dreams, right? And so they're having some kind of weird dreams. I won't get into that, but what you need to understand is uh, Joseph interprets these dreams uh, for them. And so the butler had a dream, and so Joseph interprets his dream to mean uh, that within three days, you're going to be out of prison and be restored back into the Pharaoh's court. But for the other guy, not so much good luck. The baker, his dream meant uh, that, that Pharaoh was going to kill him and that he was, uh, he was, he was not going to make it out of here, right? And so at that point, he's probably like, no more questions. I don't like this guy. I'm out. But sure enough, all of this takes place. Joseph says to the butler, uh, when you get out of here and get restored, would you remember me? Remember me. And so you think at least the kid could remember him, right? He had given him so much hope. Uh, the butler, of course, does not remember Joseph. So Joseph now is in prison, not just in prison, but forgotten about. How long? For two years, Joseph sits in prison for something that he didn't do. Can you imagine Jacob, uh, Joseph again at this point? God, really? Is this your plan? What, how are you working in this? You can almost see it. But then two years later, Pharaoh has, a, has his own dream, right? So we see again the dream interpreting happening. Uh, so Pharaoh has this weird dream, right? There's fat cows, there's skinny cows. The skinny cows come out of the Nile River and eat the fat cows. Nobody in the whole uh, Egypt knows what this dream means. Finally, the butler remembers, hey, I met a guy in prison that can interpret dreams. Why don't we bring him out to interpret the dream for us, and so we see J, uh, Joseph step in, and he begins to uh, come into to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, "Hey, can you interpret this dream?" Joseph responds, "Listen, no, no man can interpret dreams. I know a God in heaven that can." Okay, this may not seem like a big deal, but this is a huge deal because Pharaoh would have thought himself to be a god. And so you're saying, no, you're not God, but I know a God that knows more than you. And so you're basically putting your life on the line. Joseph is filled with confidence because he knows God is with him. And so all the people would have said, oh, shoot, he said that, really? And uh, everybody said that around him. And, and because it was really a slap in the face to Pharaoh. But meanwhile, God, again, gives him favor with Pharaoh. And jo Joseph goes away. He prays, talks to God, comes back, interprets the dream uh, as there's seven years of feast that will be coming, of abundance, and then after that, it'll be followed with seven years of famine. So they need, as uh, they, if they're smart, they would use these seven years of, of feast to supply themselves so that they would be prepared for the famine that was coming. And so Pharaoh listens to Joseph, he does that, and he, then he promotes Joseph to the prince of Egypt, so to speak. There's been a lot of children's stories about it. He becomes kind of like the prime minister of Egypt so that he can really uh, control everything and kind of make sure that, that Egypt is running this way. He's the right man, uh, or the right hand man of the Pharaoh. So fast forward about 10 years. Uh, the famine uh, has, has, or the feast has come. They've saved up all this money uh, and all, this, all these, this rice and everything they needed to, to exist in a famine. Well, then the famine comes. Well, guess who is, is struck by the famine? Joseph's family, way back when, right? So we've been in Egypt for a long time, but Joseph, uh, his father Jacob and his brothers are still existence. And because of this famine, we find them coming to Egypt. And so you can imagine Joseph is not very happy uh, with his brothers when they get there. Is that what we see? No, we see a completely different story. And this is the part where you start to realize Joseph is a special guy. 
he is a foreshadowing to us of Christ. He is an incredible picture of Jesus. And so as his brothers show up, Joseph immediately recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. Well, Egypt is known for, you know, you, you've seen the movies where they have kind of the cobra headdresses. Uh, they would have, Joseph would have now been speaking Egyptian, so there could have been a lot of things in place that helped him not recognize him. He probably would have been wearing makeup. You guys have seen the movies. It's kind of a big deal to dress up when you have power in Egypt. And so when, when Joseph sees his brothers, he's overwhelmed with emotion. And we would think he's overwhelmed with rage, like, you did this to me. You are the problem. How could you do this to me? And here's what I've been through. But we don't see that in Joseph. And Joseph finally, after a few tests to his brothers uh, to see if they had changed, he reveals himself. He sends everybody out of the room and reveals himself. He says, it's me, Joseph. And I want you to think about that moment for the, bro for the brothers, like, like these are the guys that pretty much connived the plan up that got Joseph to go through everything that he had been through, pretty much hell and back because of their plan to sell him into slavery. You, you could imagine that they were scared to death. When Joseph cleared the room, can you imagine what they were thinking? We're done, like we are dead. But instead of punishing them, the same way Christ doesn't punish us because of our sin, he shows forgiveness to them. Joseph said in Genesis 45, verse 5, says to his brothers, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Listen to this. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you that sent me here, but God. Can you imagine that coming out of his mouth and them sitting there thinking like, we're not gonna die. But then the, the, the maturity that would have had to happen in Joseph's life for him to be able to say that. Here's a question to think about. How would your outlook on life change? How would your attitude towards others change if you believed that in everything that you had been through in this life, that God was with you the same way Joseph believe that. So next we see Joseph send his brothers back to get their father, Jacob, who didn't come with them at first, and Benjamin. And after all these years, they're reunited. Well, and they get to Egypt and they survive and everything's going great. Uh, and then we see Jacob pass away. Joseph's dad passes away. And Genesis 50 ends kind of with the passing of Jacob uh, and, and, and the leadership of Joseph. And we see again, probably the most powerful passage, the one that you've probably heard before, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 15, listen to this. When Joseph, Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did for him, right? So these guys have been with Joseph for a while. They don't believe that his forgiveness is true. They still are thinking, man, he's just doing this because of dad, and once dad's gone, he's, he's, he's gonna kill us. Listen to Joseph. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, verse 19, for I am, I am in the place, uh, do not fear for I am in the place of God. He's not in the place of God is what he's saying. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. So we see this just amazing story. Listen, that's just a few parts of it to try to summarize it for you. If you've not read Genesis 37 through 50, it is an incredible picture of the gospel, and Joseph is an incredible person to learn from. And so here's what I wanna do today. I wanna point out three things to you that we can learn from the life of Joseph. Three things that we can learn from the life of Joseph. I'll go ahead and give them to you. The first one is that Joseph's life teaches us about trials and suffering. Joseph's life teaches us about how to embrace trials and suffering. Joseph's life teaches us about forgiveness. How do we forgive people that have sinned against us? And then thirdly, it teaches us about Jesus. We see an incredible picture of Christ. And you guys know the whole point of this series is to show you that every story in the Bible 
whispers the name of Jesus. It shows us Christ. The Bible is a book about God. It's a book about Jesus. And so let's talk about a few of these. So the first one, Joseph's life teaches us about trials and suffering. Trials and suffering, uh, the first thing I want you to know, were a part of God's plan for Joseph. Trials and suffering were a part of God's plan. For some of us, that's like a knee-jerk reaction. We're thinking, how would God include trials and suffering as a part of his plan? And it comes from the false teaching that if we follow God, everything will go well for us, right? And to a degree, that's right. But it, it, it really, the, the, the detail in there is how do you define everything will go good for us? Is it that we're walking and we're safe in God's will? Or is it that we want prosperity and wealth and good things to happen around us? I'm not saying that they both can't happen, but I'm saying some of that happened in Joseph's life. But also Joseph went through some very difficult things and it was the will of God. And so we need to understand that trials and suffering were a part of God's plan for Joseph to get him to where he wanted him to be and to grow him. Trials and suffering were not only a part of Joseph's life, we see it in the life of Jesus, right? Trials and suffering were a part of God's plan in Jesus' life. And so I believe we can assume that trials and suffering will be a part of God's plan in our life. I believe the New Testament and lots of the Bible teaches us that. And so what that means is that that cancer that you went through, it can be a part of God's plan. That divorce that you went through in your life, that miscarriage that you went through, that infertility that you struggled with for so long, that person that betrayed you so deeply, that promotion at work that you got passed over for that you felt like you deserved, that disability that you or your children were born with or those prejudices you faced because of who you are and the color of your skin, whatever it is, those trials and that suffering that happened to you that you could not control, it's a part of God's plan to get you to where he wants you to be. It's a part of him glorifying uh, himself through you. Trials are never for nothing. Trials are never for nothing. Suffering is never wasted in the Bible. Never in nobody's life do we see suffering wasted. Even if you can't see it, God is working, and we have to understand that. Billy, how do we know this? Well, let me give you a few promises in the Bible about it and see what you think. Romans 8.28, which is a verse that if you do not have memorized, you should have it memorized. Romans 8.28 says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. What that means is that as a Christian, we can trust that everything that happens in our life is God is working for our good and for his glory. Well, what is that purpose should be the next question. And I believe the next verse, verse 29 in Romans 8, answers. Paul says, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What is the purpose of trials and suffering in this world? What is God's good plan? It's to conform us to be more and more like Jesus. So that means that as we walk through trials and suffering, part of the purpose in that in our life is that we would become more and more like Christ because what did Christ do in this life? He walked through trials and suffering to accomplish God's plan for his life. And so sometimes we need to understand that our pain is about growing us internally. It will grow us internally. Paul teaches in Philippians 3 that there are some parts of Jesus that we will only know through pain and suffering. Think about it. Paul says, I want to know Christ. I want to experience his suffering. I want to become like him. What is he talking about? He's talking about the deeper we know Christ, one of the most deeply places that we know him is in pain and suffering. Sometimes our pain enables us to minister to others. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, because I was inflicted, I was able to comfort others with the comfort that I experienced from Jesus. What does that mean? Because you went through that cancer, because you went through that miscarriage, because you went through that suffering, you can say, I've been there, I've tasted Jesus in that wilderness, I've been in the valley and I found him to be the anchor of my soul and I want to tell you about how he's going to anchor your soul. That is the church. That's what God intends for us to do with our suffering with others. Sometimes what we go through in this life is not going to make sense to us. We're never going to be able to figure it out. 
But what we, can, what we can understand on this side of eternity is that God has promised us a few things. Based on his word, he's promised us that our pain and our suffering is never for nothing, that God will use it, and that our pain and our suffering is temporary, that there will come a day where there is no pain and no suffering any longer, and that day is the return of Jesus. God will eradicate it, and it will be gone. He will wipe every tear from our eyes, and that is what we do as pain and suffering increase on this earth. We long more for the return of Jesus. And so do you long for the return of Christ? That's one of the things that pain and suffering in this world are meant to show us. If there's one thing that we see in Joseph's life, it's that there is not one wasted event. There's not one wasted second. There's not one random molecule in all of the universe that God is not controlling and using for his purpose. And that brings us great hope. God had a purpose in everything. Joseph said, even in the bad things, overriding what others meant for evil for his good purpose. You'd say, Billy, well, that's easy to say when you're not in the midst of a trial and you're not suffering the way I'm suffering. I understand that. I understand that, but that doesn't change the word of God. So I wanna transition to ask you and, and look at Joseph's life. How did he get through it? Maybe you're walking through something right now and you say, Billy, it's the hardest thing I've ever walked through. Maybe you know somebody that's walking through something. I tell you, you can learn from the life of Joseph. Joseph's mindset, his thought patterns were huge in getting through it. A few things I want you to know about this. One, first, Joseph trusted God. He trusted God. Man, he really trusted God. You see that throughout his story. His faith was his anchor. He clung to the promises of God. And listen, he didn't have the Bible in front of him. He just had the promises that he had heard from the people that were before him that God would bless him and curse the other people that cursed against him, that God would take care of him, that God would accomplish his plan through him, that he was chosen by God. He trusted that God was using his suffering for, for his good plan. And there's nothing, listen, there's nothing more demoralizing than thinking that you're just walking through pain and suffering and it's meaningless. It has no purpose. There's nothing that will cause people to get to a place of despair more than that, but God's word tells us that is not the case when we are a Christian. Listen to how, how Joseph sums up this in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. This is the, the best verse in the entire story to me. He's talking to his brothers. He said, you meant what you did to me for evil. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. This is the verse that we're memorizing in our family worship night with our children, if you're doing that, right? It's such an incredible, powerful verse for us to instill into our kids that no matter what happens and no matter what people intend for evil and sin against us in this world, God can override it for good and God can use it for good and he will use it for good. And Joseph was right. Think about it. The slavery led to Potiphar's house, Potiphar's house led to the false accusation. The false accusation led Joseph to prison. The prison led to the cupbearer or the, or the butler forgetting about Joseph. The forgetting led to Pharaoh, which led to the throne, which led Joseph to a place where he could save his people. Think about it. Every detail was, was controlled by God. There's no doubt that God was in complete control of Joseph's life and he was working it all out for his good plan. He used every single trial, every bit of suffering to accomplish uh, his good purpose in Joseph's life. Secondly, Joseph chose to trust God even when he couldn't see it. Listen, it's easy for us to read the whole story of Joseph and then look back and say, man, how easy would it have been for him to trust that? But Joseph didn't know when he was being in the ditch about to be sold into slavery that God had a plan to save his family through that. He didn't know that. He couldn't see that when he was in prison that God was using that to get him to a place of power where he would be able to save his entire people. He didn't know that. He couldn't see that. All he knew were the promises of God, that God was with him. And that God was blessing him even in these places of suffering. And that's the toughest thing about walking through pain and suffering in this life is that sometimes we can't see it. And I would even say most of the time in the midst of it, we can't see what God is doing. We can't see it. We can't see the big picture. All we can see is what is right in front of us. And jo Joseph, there's no way he would have saw that. How betrayal, slavery, prison would lead to saving his family. There's no way. So how did he get through it? 
He clung to God's promises. He believed that God was good, that God was faithful to his people, and that he was sovereign, that he was in control, and that he was working. So that meant that even in the fire, Joseph could say, I trust him. No matter what happens to me, I trust him because I know he is good. I know he is faithful, and I know that he is sovereign. And thirdly, we see that Joseph believed that God was with him. This is the theme of the story of the life of Joseph. Five times in these 14 chapters, we see him say, or or we see the author Moses tell us uh, that the Lord was with Joseph. Read these, Genesis 39, two through five. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in the eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put Joseph in charge of everything he owned and the blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had. Bounced down, 39, 20 through 23. While in prison, the Lord was with Joseph again. He showed him kindness and he granted him favor in the eye of the prison warden. The Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Joseph's whole life is a picture of what it looks like to live with the assurance that God is with you in the midst of whatever you're walking through. Listen, this is the the, the greatest blessing of the Christian faith, that through Christ, when we become in Christ, that no matter what we face in this entire world, there's absolutely nothing more comforting than the fact that the presence of God is with us. The single greatest blessing in the Christian faith is the presence of God, because there's nothing that can take that away from you, nothing. That's why Paul tells us in Romans 8, the most triumphant chapter in the entire New Testament, nothing can separate us from the love and presence of God. No matter what we face on this earth, God will never leave us, nor will he never forsake us. Joseph experienced that God was as much in the pit and the prison as he was in the palace. He was just as present in the bad that he was in the good. And that is what drove Joseph and kept him. The Bible is so clear on this. Listen, there's so many verses. Read the book of Psalms. God draws near to us in suffering and pain. God draws near to us in our time of need. God draws near to us when we're brokenhearted. Be encouraged. So the last thing I wanna ask you a question. How would your attitude and how would your outlook change If you believe that in everything God was with you, I'm talking about everything, everything that you have been through, that he had been with you, everything that you have been through, that he is with you now, everything that you're going to go through, that he will be with you. There's nothing that gives us more hope in the Christian life than the promise of the presence of God. It encourages us. It gives us confidence that God is working no matter what we can see and what we can't see. This is an absolute game changer. If we're in a trial right now, if we're in uh, pain right now or suffering or a difficult scenario, we need to understand God is with us. God is working. You can trust him even if you can't see him and even if you can't feel it. God is with you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. For most people, when they're walking through difficult things, from my experience, even in my own life, we just wanna get to the other side, right? That's the whole goal, man. If I could just get out of this or if I could just get to the other side. But there's a story of, of, that I read in a biography one time about people that actually had, had made it through the concentration camps during the Holocaust. And, and, and it's the story of, of, of Corrie Ten Boom and, and understanding it. But she said, you know, I watched people give up and despair one by one. And the thing that differentiated them from me is that they were trying to look to the other side. I want to get out of here. I want to get out of here instead of embracing the comfort of God in the circumstance and understanding that God is with me. It's not that she didn't want to get to the other side. Nobody wants to be in suffering and pain and punishment and persecution. But in it, in the midst of it, God is more present with us. And if we will embrace that, then God will help us walk to the other side. I'm going to read a little bit more of her story a little bit later. But it's such a powerful example for us to understand that. The second thing we see in Joseph's story is it teaches us about forgiveness. It doesn't just teach us about trials and suffering. It teaches us about forgiveness. Joseph's ability to forgive here is amazing. 
It, it parallels Christ more than any other story in the entire Bible. Can you imagine the feelings that he would have had when Joseph's brothers showed up in Egypt? Again, I, I pointed this out as we were reading. You would think bitterness, you would think anger, you would think revenge. But in Joseph, it's none of that. God had done an incredible work inside of Joseph. We see it in the way that he names his child. He said that God had enabled him to forget what had happened uh, in the land of his father. Uh, it's one that foreshadows this situation, Jesus' forgiveness for us on the cross. It's one that sets an example for how we should forgive those in our life that have sinned against us. And so I want to point out a few things to help us as we think about forgiveness in our life. Letter A, forgiveness is a choice, not a feeling. There's a great lie that you have to feel like forgiving someone to forgive them. But forgiveness is not a, a feeling, it's a choice. I was reading a, a book one time of, about a, a, a pastor in Rwanda. If you know anything about Rwanda, they went through a ton of genocides and, and these people were killing them, killing their families, raping the children, raping, it was just a terrible situation. And they were taking the kids and training them to become armies of war, uh, to become a part of the army of war as well. And this pastor who knew God in the midst of this had watched his family die and he was talking about forgiveness. So we're not talking to somebody who didn't go through something difficult to forgive, something probably more than any of us will ever go through. And he said, listen, uh, there's two big lies that Satan uses in our life when it comes to forgiveness. The first lie is that you must wait until the person shows that they've repented to forgive them. You, you must wait until they're sorry before you have to forgive them. But forgiveness is not primarily between you and them, he says. It's between you and Jesus. Forgiveness is something in your own heart. It's less about them and it's more about your heart for God. Because here's the truth, the person that God is asking you to forgive, they might not ever be sorry. These people in Rwanda didn't come and ask for his forgiveness. And so you can think night, night, day, night, day, night, day, he sits there without his family thinking about what had happened to them. The bitterness and the anger that could well up. But he had learned that no matter if they were sorry or not, Bitterness and forgiveness was destroying him. It wasn't destroying them. They may not ever be sorry or apologize, or they may not even ever know that what they did was specifically wrong. They might not ever come to grips with that. So forgiveness is not about us being right. It's about our heart with God. The second lie he said is that forgiveness is a feeling, and you can't really do it until you feel it. But he says forgiveness is not a feeling. It's a choice based on what you believe about God and your trust in his control over all things. You know, some of us have people in our lives, and we know it. As soon as I said forgiveness, they, they immediately jumped into your mind. And you say, I'll never forgive them, Billy. I'll never forgive them. They've damaged you or they have took something from you that you can't get back and you hate them for it. But let me ask you a question. What if you believed, like Joseph, that behind all of those bad things and that sin that happened to you, there was a good God that's taking care of you and that's gonna work things out for, for your good and for his glory. What if you believed that? How would it change the way you did? What if you took Jesus at his word when he says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, their sins, your father will not forgive your sins? What if instead of allowing bitterness and unforgiveness to grow and harden your heart, you ask God to do the exact work in you that he had done in Joseph? Listen to the work that God had done in Joseph one more time. Genesis 41, 51. Joseph, as he named his first child, after he had been through everything he had been through, he had a child in Egypt. His name was Manasseh, and he named him Manasseh because he said, it is because God has made me forget all my trouble, and all my father's household. God had made him forget, and God can do the same for us. I believe he can do the same. 
There's an there's a author by the name of R.T. Kendall. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it was part of my training as I was uh, coming into pastoring that uh, there's this guru about forgiveness. He's, he spent his whole life writing on forgiveness. I, I don't have time to share the whole book with you, but I do want to share a few things about it. R.T. Kendall, Total Forgiveness, if you want to read uh, the book about forgiveness, if it's something that you are interested in or struggling with. He gives us seven proofs that we've totally forgiven someone. So how do you know? What are the proof marks that we've forgiven someone in our life. He tells us seven proofs. I'm just gonna read them, not talk about them too much, but I want you to know them. He says, here's the proofs that we've forgiven someone. The first one is this, we don't tell anybody. One of the most common ways to respond to hurt or somebody that's done something against us or sinned against us is tell people, is go around and just spread it because you want them to hurt the same way you've hurt. And R.T. Kendall says, no, that's, that, that's not total forgiveness. That's not what forgiveness looks like. Forgiveness and slander don't go together. That's not what God's forgiveness looks like. That's not what forgiveness looks like in our heart. He says there are some exceptions. We can tell God, obviously, and we can tell one other person when it comes to therapy reasons and and to get through it. And obviously, we can talk about something if it's a crime and we have to go and testify before the court. But there's a total difference in that situation and us spreading the word of what had happened to us to try to get the tension on us or to try to get other people against them. The second proof, he says, is don't let them be afraid of you. Let me just read through them and I'll bounce back so you can get them all down. Proof one, don't tell anybody. Proof two, don't let them be afraid of you. Proof three, don't let them feel guilty. Proof four, let them save face. Proof five, protect them from their darkest secret. Proof six, total forgiveness is a life sentence. And proof seven, bless them. So he says the first thing is you don't tell anybody. The second one is you don't let them be afraid of you. Notice how Joseph's brothers, when they come and they're scared to death and petrified in front of him, what does he say back to them in 45.5 Genesis? Don't be distressed and do not be angry with yourself for selling me here. Because it, is, it was to save lives that God sent me here. He didn't let them feel guilty. He didn't let them be afraid of him. He, 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 he blamed it on God, basically. Because his forgiveness was not about making them feel wrong. It, it didn't do any good to, for him to avenge or to get revenge for them people. He understood that. And he let them save face. He didn't rub it in their face every time he saw them. After their father died, he didn't just take their face and rub it in the mud and say, hey, hey, look what you've done now. What are you gonna do now? I'm in charge and you can't do anything. No, he didn't do that. He had forgiven them. He treated them as if it never happened. He protected them from their darkest secret. Joseph never told his dad what his brothers did to him. Think about that. Don't you know when his dad came for the first time, he just wanted to sit down and say, Dad, listen, your, brother, your, your sons are terrible. They're evil. They tried to kill me. And then they lied to you. He didn't do that because he knew it wouldn't help anything. He protected their darkest secret. And then Kendall says that total forgiveness is a life sentence. He says it, it's not something that just goes away. He says this is something we have to decide to do every morning at the foot of the cross. Because of our understanding of how God has forgiven us, we forgive others the same way. And then the New Testament even goes so far to say that we bless them, we pray for them, we bless them. Not because they deserve to be blessed, but because God blessed us when we didn't deserve to be blessed. You say, Billy, that's too much, man. That that is way too much. Who is this guy? Where does he get this from? That's not in the Bible. Look at the life of Christ. And look at the life of Jesus. That is in the Bible. It is so clear in Scripture. I can never forgive them. I can can never forget what they've done to me. Yeah, you can. With God's help, you can. Billy, I can forgive them, but I don't have to like them. Is that what the passage says? Is that what Joseph did? No, he not only forgave them, he brought them in, took care of them. And love them, love their sons, is what he says. Ultimately, in the Christian faith, the cross is our model of forgiveness. How much is God asking you to forgive? Jesus and the cross is our model.
Don't take me at my word. You read about the cross. You read the New Testament, Ephesians 4.32. Forgive others as God has forgiven you. And then lastly, and this is powerful and I wanna read it. Forgiveness will take us deeper into the love of God than we've ever been. I wanna share more of Corey Ten Boom's story because I think it's powerful. If you've, you've read the book Seven Women uh, that Eric Metaxas read, it's about seven just uh, women of faith in the, in the world that have just done some incredible things. And Corey Ten Boom's is one of the stories that has always just stuck out to me. She was a Dutch Christian that was arrested uh, and put into a concentration camp by the Germans in World War II because she was helping Jews escape uh, the, the, the German uh, police. She in the concentration camp, as you would know, she went through a ton of suffering and humiliation and even watched her, her father and her, her, her sister uh, die in, in these concentration camps. And in her biography, I just wanna read it to you, you gotta follow, it's, it's a little bit long, but I think it's worth it. In her biography, she talks about some of the painful humiliation that she endured in the concentration camp at the hands of one specific German guard. Well, several years after the war, she was speaking as a Christian at a church service about forgiveness. And afterwards, an old man stepped forward and she recognized him. It was that one cruel guard, the same guard that had inflicted great pain and humiliation on her personally and that had killed her sister Betsy in the concentration camp. Now, he was in front of me, his hand thrust out a fine message, he said, ma'am, how good is it to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so uh, glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him in the leather crop swinging from his belt. And it was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. He said, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he didn't remember me, is what she was thinking. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Ma'am, again, the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sin had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult decision and thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that the message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a command of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a, I had a, I had, I had a home in Holland for victims for Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to also return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars were. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids, and it was as simple and as horrible as that. And still, I stood there with coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much, but you supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder. It raced out my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. Freedom peace and love. You know, there's nothing that takes, that takes us more deeply into the love of God than forgiveness. It's as simple as that. It's nothing shows us the heart of God more than forgiveness. But there's nothing more difficult to walk through personally than forgiving someone who sinned against us. 
So I want to ask you a question. Who is it in your life that God's asking you to forgive? Listen, some of us, we know exactly who it is. As soon as I said it, God brought it to your mind. You'd say, Billy, you don't know what they've done to me. And, and maybe I don't. Maybe I have no idea what they've done to you. Don't know how bad it is. But what I do know is what God asked us to do. And he asked us to forgive no matter what the situation. Because you're harboring bitterness and unforgiveness isn't destroying them. It's destroying you and God loves you. And God wants to give you freedom. And then the last thing we see in Joseph's story is that it's a picture of Christ. It's an incredible picture of Jesus. Joseph was a beloved son, a suffering service servant. He was uh, an exalted prince of Egypt. Well, Jesus was all these things. He was God's beloved son. He was God's suffering servant that came to serve. He was the one that God exalted to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He was the Savior. Listen to this. One day, many years into the future, another Savior like Joseph would come and walk the same path that Joseph walked. He would be betrayed by his brothers and then lied about and falsely condemned. Of course, unlike Joseph, he wouldn't be sold into slavery. He would be put to death. But like Joseph, he would be raised from that pit to sit on the highest throne of the land. And like Joseph, instead of exacting vengeance from that throne, he would use his exhausted position to forgive and save his brothers. And like Joseph, he would weep tears of joy when we were reconciled to him. Jesus is the point of the story of Joseph. It's not to look at Joseph and, and marvel at Joseph's faith, even though his faith was great. It's to look and see the Savior that went through all of the same things for you and I and forgave us. So right where you are, I just want you to bow your head. I want you to think about that. As you listen to the story of Joseph and everything that happened in his life, have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus went through the same, even worse, for you. He was sinned against, he was betrayed. He was put on a cross, he was beaten to death. He was punished for my sin and for your sin so that we could walk in freedom, so that we could be saved. And so maybe you're here today, you say, Billy, I, I've never thought about that, I've never experienced that. I don't know what your next step is. I don't know what the story of Joseph has challenged you to do. For some of us, it's salvation. For some of us, it's forgiveness. For some of us, it's to renew our mind as we walk through pain and suffering in this world. But I pray today that you'd make that decision. You have the courage to step. So Father, that's my prayer. Lord, would you meet us exactly where we are? God, no matter where we are in this room, Lord, that you would give us the courage to take the step that you've asked us to take. Father, what a story. God, what's something to learn from? God, it challenges me to think about Joseph's faith. God, it challenges me to think about what you've done for me. So, Father, would you use it to build our faith up and grow us into the people you've called us to be? Lord, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here. We'll see you back next week.